Keep your hymnal open if you can. Stay there. Look at verse 1 again. When all the world was cursed by Moses' condemnation, St. John the Baptist came with words of consolation. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit worthy of repentance and don't say to yourselves, it'll be okay. For I say to you, God can raise up children from the rocks. And the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is thrown into the fire. Where's the consolation? Who is St. John the Baptist? That's maybe the better question. If we want to understand the blunderbuss effect that he has on us as a character of scripture. Now, if you don't know what a blunderbuss is, these are kind of fun. It's, it's a gun. It's an old gun. It's not a gun you really want. It's a gun you just kind of put anything in. Silverware, you know, whatever you got, some gunpowder, and then you shoot it. It's like, so an early shotgun, blunderbuss. Um, and what do you get with an early shotgun? Well, if you're shooting a fork and a teddy bear and like a, I don't know, some statue at people, you're going to have a diverse effect. Not everyone's going to have the same results. That's how John the Baptist tends to work in his stories. Because none of the stories are really about him. Really, at all. In fact, we know almost nothing about this guy, except for what other people said about him, a couple things he said, and that he, he ate you know, locusts and honey and wore camel's hair and lived in a cave or something. Uh, and in this way, and that's maybe the most important thing about him, he looked an awful lot like Elijah. Which you're for a, if you're a second temple era Jew, that is a Jew at the time of Jesus, right? Well, then some guy walking around looking like Elijah, talking like Elijah, acting like Elijah, this is like setting off red flags everywhere because the last time there was a prophet anybody listened to, he said, before the Messiah comes, Elijah's coming back. That's the most important thing to know about John the Baptist. In the, in the chaos of the first century world, the collapsing Roman Republic, I mean, growing empire, I don't know, all sorts of jockeying for position, and certainly the Jews of the time definitely wanting their freedom, their own land, you might say. And into that powder keg, this wild-eyed fanatic with locusts in his teeth comes shouting about how we're all going to be burned if we don't repent now. Kind of like Isaiah was saying about don't go to Egypt to rely on them, Hezekiah, don't do it, repent, and the king of Assyria will be stopped, right? The, the Isaiah text that we just kind of had read a moment ago, same kind of preaching. It really is just this, and it's very simple. It's that we have to repent. That's John's preaching. We have to repent. We have to stop. We have to turn back. We have to do it differently. And the normal human goes, why? Or of what? But anybody who has had anything really go bad in their life that they remember and think about often, well, that's why. <laughs> right? uh, because you can repent of, of even bad thoughts, bad habits, uh, bad decisions, bad past, bad feelings. It doesn't make them go away, but it is a very different way of treating yourself. As opposed to believing you can bring about your own transformation into some kind of glory on your own part, instead, you can simply believe you're not good enough. You're just not good enough. I repent. I'm depressed. 
I'm a depressed person. I repent. I'm not good enough to feel happy all the time. I repent. You know what that means? It means I'm a discontent and covetous person. I repent. You know what? I'm going to still be that person. I repent. Give it to him. Just give it to him. And that's what John the Baptist is saying. And so what happens is all the people who have lots of stuff, they don't like what he's saying. And all the people who have been stolen from, trampled on, cheated, don't understand why the system's breaking, can't get their tax benefits, on and on and on. They're like, okay, let's repent. And they go out to this guy in droves, thousands by a river in the middle of nowhere so he can wash them. (laughs) Talk about a cult. Right? And it is, in a sense, it's a culture arising from a preaching. And that preaching says this, all you Jews, he's talking first century, second temple Judaism, all you Jews need to be washed with water in order for the Messiah to come and for it to go well for you. And a little known, but one of my favorite facts about this is this is doubly explosive to the Jews because the Jews have baptism. Did you know this? The Jews have baptism. The Jews have infant baptism. Did you know this? It's historically documented. You can find the coffins that are really small. The Jews have baptism. But the Jews don't have baptism for Jews. The Jews have baptism for you disgusting Gentiles. And if you get washed with water, according to the ritual, you disgusting Gentile, now you can be a God-fearer, and you can go to the disgusting Gentile God-fearer court near the temple and give us your money. And a lot of people, because they love Jesus, are like, okay, I'll do it. Right? John the Baptist again comes along and says, the Jews got to get washed now. All the promises from of old, guess what? That are over. Except for in this one guy who is the temple, right? Who's going to fulfill it all in himself and he's coming. John says, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. And think on that one again. I mean, next time you're tying your shoes, right? And then imagine your shoes not as your shoes, which are pretty clean, really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but imagine that like like it's somebody else's shoes first, right? And then put uh, no canvas between you and their foot, <laughs> and dusty roads all the way, calluses, corns, all the rest of it, right? Yeah. Uh, and not worthy, not worthy. He says. His view of this entire thing is, I repent, right? That's all we got. He must increase, I must decrease. That's, that's, that's all he has. And this is, if you're going to really call this something Lutheran, this is law. This is Lutheran law all the way through and through. We are full on in the condemnation, wrath of God is coming mode. Be afraid. And then rejoice that, well, St. John the Baptist came to point to the gospel, not the law. One who believes in the good news of the victory of Jesus Christ over death need not fear the condemnation of the law anymore. That's also the Lutheran insight. It's not that we make law and gospel go away or that we balance them or there's some kind of magic way we can twist the words to make people believe what we say. I was taught that kind of nonsense, by the way. It's that the good news of Jesus' victory makes it so the law is no longer a tyrant to us and rather becomes just something really good. It's really good to love your neighbor as yourself. It really just is. I don't even need a reward for it. Yeah. The law becomes that. And our flesh never really gets that. So we have this whole third use of the law thing. And you can debate that if you want. I'll teach it to you if you want. What's more important is that we understand that all of John the Baptist's condemnation of us isn't a condemnation of us, but an exaltation of Christ for us. 
And that we see that when we realize how condemned we actually are. That even after regeneration, even after faith, even after working my entire life to be the best Christian I can be, I will still lose it like that. Thank God, as a mature man, my tongue doesn't always go with my head. And that's Christian discipline, right? What is true religion, James tells us, and he's paying attention to what St. John the Baptist would say, right? It's, It's religion that would teach you to hold your tongue. To recognize that you do have evil boiling inside of you all the time as fleshly considerations. And if you're not aware of it, it will rule. It won't tell you it's ruling either. It'll just do it. And you'll have all these ramifications, all these problems in life that there's problems in life. Don't get me wrong, but there's some you don't have to put up with, you know, and they're usually the ones that hate for your neighbor creates. (laughs) And so Christians, again, we love this idea that I can stop trying to prove to God I need to have done it good enough to deserve where I am now. I can can just let all that go and realize he gave me every single piece of it up to this moment, every footstep, every path, every failure even. He let it happen so that I could say I repent. I'll trust you now. You must increase, I must decrease. The word of Jesus Christ lasts forever. I'm a flower. (laughs) You're a flower, sounds nice, right? Yeah, you're a flower. And like the flowers in your yard this summer, right? Where are they now? Okay, so is your life. Doesn't seem like a summer, but it is. It's a really long summer, a generation. And it seems real good in the springtime for sure. Everything is bright and beautiful. Your eyes are like big wide because I just never saw this before, right? You're so excited. The high of summer, the heat, you can start to feel that sun on you a little bit. I need some shelter here. I need to take care of some stuff a little differently. I'll go ahead and build myself a house. Yeah, yeah. And then and then the winter comes. And, and in this story that I'm telling, you know, the winter comes, no house is big enough. The wolf's going to blow it down, right? The Green Reaper's going to come. He's going to come slowly. He's going to come fast. It's going to hurt. But that's where we are, where the devil has his throne. And again, St. John the Baptist says, yeah, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And guess what now? That word who became flesh to dwell among us, now by water, spirit, and blood crying, dwells inside of your body. Not just inside your head. Not just inside your spirit. Not just inside some ideas. In your body, the Holy Spirit dwells. Corporately, proximately, making you his own temple And that, again, is the promise that the word of the Lord will endure forever. So while your own body will see itself perish, the word of Jesus Christ forever alive inside of you, that even names you by your name now, it will not. And that's the whole preaching of St. John the Baptist. So that whatever time you're in, whatever place you're in, his real message is, if the Bible says this is why God gets angry, the result will be bad stuff in life when you do it. And you can... (laughs) You can put on Woodstock in the 60s and make a whole mass spectacle for a generation of people to tell them, nah, it won't work. And guess what? Oh, yeah, it sure does. You go off the tracks, it gets evil real fast. And I don't think I have to tell you where to look these days to find that. John the Baptist's message to such days is, okay, sure. Yeah, there's tyranny. Okay, sure. Yeah, there's theft. So you don't steal. So you tell the truth. So you do good. Yeah, but what about all of those? Call on Jesus. 
You take care of yours, right? I, I'm not taking us through a lot of individual text today because the blunderbuss effect makes it all over the Bible. We'd be turning pages left and right to get to where St. John the Baptist is. But do you remember where the soldiers who come to him, they say, what should we do now that we're not going to be bad soldiers? How should we live now? And he just tells them, don't steal. That's it. Now, you might think, well, that's not rocket science. I know. But like to the people in the streets of Rockford, it sure is. To the average poor person in this street or in this, in this city, it sure is. They don't know not to steal. They don't know not to commit adultery. They don't know not to lie. I mean, and quite a few of them, it would seem some days, don't know not to murder. Right? Again, I don't think this is a reason to be afraid. I think this is a reason to realize we live in the same times everybody else has lived. We just see it more clearly than they did oh, 30 years ago when the screen made it look like everything was going to get pretty. And it hasn't. It's just gotten more normal. You build it, it rots. That's what, what happens. The men get power and money. They take it for themselves. They steal. That's what, what happens. It doesn't work for them. Someone else comes and knocks them off, and now they're in charge. It, it happens. But what about you? What about your house, your neighbors, your children? See, now that has to happen there because you reign there. You own yourself, your mind, your body, your heart there. And again, St. John the Baptist says, okay, so realize it's grass, it's a flower, it's been given to you, but flowers are beautiful. The grass has a purpose, doesn't make it bad. Just realize that what's inside of you is even greater, this word of God. And it's going to make the body that you have even greater on the day when he returns in his victorious triumph. And until then, it makes your body as it is a temple specially designed for the praise, prayer, and thanksgiving of him in this time. In this time. For his love and care and answer to your prayers in this time. Again, we're not going to go into the whole story of Hezekiah. Isaiah chapter 36 to 39. But I cannot imagine being in a worse position than this man was in. As the king, he is in the worst position a human being can possibly be put in. Everything is against him. His own city has every reason to turn him over to the enemy so they can survive. And he listens to a guy who no one else wants to listen to, Isaiah. And he does what no one else thinks will work, which is he just prays. That's all he does. And God comes sweeping down with angels and destroys the armies. Now, I got a story on the side for you about times in the Reformation where these groups of people who we Lutherans call the radicals decided that this meant they could stage rebellions against the government and Jesus would fight for them. It never went well. Because that's not what I'm saying. And anybody online who would think I'm saying that's an idiot. Okay, so the issue is not Hezekiah prays, expect to win a battle you picked that you can't win. That's not what it is. It's when you think that you're surrounded, Jesus let it happen. And that means you're surrounded by Jesus. And if you say, hey, Jesus, this be a bit too much for me, he listens. He listens. He usually says, no, it's not. Have patience. And then it changes and it's better. And you learn something and you grow. And again, through the suffering, we see each other too. Um, that is the pursuit of understanding wisdom in the Old Testament 
that John the Baptist again points us to, this word of God that endures forever, this reality that never changes, and the fact that whatever your enemies are doing and whoever your enemies are, sometimes it's a best friend even, right? Sometimes it's a family member. Don't be afraid to turn that enemy over to Jesus in the trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. You can pray against an enemy and watch them get blessed. They'll be blessed and blessed and blessed and then come and be your friend. And you don't even know why, but you were praying against them. Or you can pray against an enemy and you cannot even know that you prayed against them and you can, you can realize three years later they're gone. What happened? A variety of things. And again, these are experiences of mine. I'm like left hand, right hand here, right? So uh, praying against your enemies will teach you this. Be careful who you pray against. You never know what's going to happen when Jesus starts answering prayers against your enemies. I mean, really, again, your, your, your worst enemy suddenly wants to hang out or something, right? Uh, and then likes you, and you, know, you, you won't believe it, right? Uh, so the point here again, all of this, we're, we're grass, we're flowers, we fade. The spring comes, we rise up, but then we die. But this word of Jesus, which starts with he is risen, continues to prophesy, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This word will outlast everything, always. It'll be forever, and that's why we're going to be forever. So now as a congregation, right, to believe in that conviction for, for your home life and for this place is to continue on the path we set when we left behind our old building and said, we'll trust in the word of God. We'll let that be. And I had a, a marvelous um, answer to prayer uh, moment when someone says something to me and it's like, it really clicks and I see it. Um, uh, and I, I'll, I'll save who it was, but it's somebody who's not a member of our congregation, but, but knows our congregation well enough and, and comes and goes at times. And, and this person said to me, you know, I, I come and go in, in lots of congregations, you know, several of them in Rockford, and yours is the only one that's growing. And I had to step back. I thought, we're growing? I mean, we kind of look small in here right now. Would you believe I counted? There's 22 households represented in this room. 22 households. We got a lot of fractured, scattered, lonely people, right? But in fact, we are growing. And, and I know why. It has nothing to do with my personality because I'm not very personable. If you get to know me, I'm kind of antisocial, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it has nothing to do with that. If anything, that's in the way, right? It has everything to do with we're opening the Bible, we're believing what it says, and even though I haven't looked at the text with you yet in this sermon, we do what John the Baptist says to do is we say, we repent. I know it. I know you're doing it in your personal lives. If you were not, we would not be having the results in our church that we're having, which are largely people loving each other, <laughs> you know, enjoying coming to church rather than you know being afraid of it for some reason. So at the risk of, of going off on my own, and not staying in the text, let's go to the text and keep building on what got us here. And so John, uh, Luke chapter 1, the nativity of John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? I gave you a big spread. Let's look at his birth story. And we'll see in the prophecy from his father, Zechariah, who is a priest and a prophet, uh, uh, some words that I almost think don't need to be explained. They're so straightforward. Um, and yet we'll do it anyway. Fun. Here we go. 
Uh, verse 57 of Luke says, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered. If you just kind of skim up above, you'll see Mary has been with her for about three months. Mary's pregnant already. That whole event where John the Baptist in the womb leaps at the sound of Mary's voice, showing us that babies can have faith or something like that right? Um, that happened already. The Magnificat, this amazing song Mary sings that kind of takes Hannah's song for Samuel and Jesus you know, and, and amplifies it to the Gentiles, right? So all that's happened. And now um, she's, uh, Elizabeth is going to give birth to this, this other baby that was prophesied by an angel, Gabriel, same angel, before Jesus is, right? So as we come into next week, we're going to get the whole Christmas story where the angel shows up to Mary and, and we'll get the Magnificat and all that stuff. So we're not in chronological order here exactly. Um, but before all this has happened, uh, Gabriel has shown up to Zechariah. Zechariah, who is a priest uh, and a, a, a Levite, he's in the, the household and lineage of Aaron. He's doing his duty, which is he's gone to Jerusalem in order to be the priest that goes into the holy place one time a year. Um, not everybody who's born a priest gets to do this. It's something that's done, I believe, by lot. And so it would have been several dice rolls that happened through his family that the Sadducees would have managed. And he gets a letter in the mail off in his Levitical city where he's living saying, uh, hey, you got to report for jury duty, right? Only it's a little bit more in jury duty. And he goes in and an angel shows up, says you're going to have a baby in your 80s. <laughs> he goes, ah. And angel says, yeah, so now you can't talk either. There you go. Uh, that's all happened. So it, there's more, but that'll, that'll lead into the story here, I think, well enough. So uh, when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother said, no, uh, his name shall be called John. Ah, there's still so much here. Um, the, the, sorry, I got two thoughts in my head at the same time. I'm trying to chase them both. I can't do it. Uh, oh, that's it. I, this belongs more in the, in the prelude a little bit. Just there are other infant narratives of miracle stories in the Bible. Samson being like the most famous one, probably from of old, but then, um, I'm missing one. There's one other one before, before Jesus. Um, in any case, uh, Oh, Samuel, this story throughout it is intentionally making echoes to all those stories. And I, I don't know that I can like detail that today, but you can just start to smell it yourself if you want to. Like, like this clearly is a fulfillment of every birth narrative that ever came. Um, you know, Abraham and, and uh, uh, Isaac as well. Right? It's, it's all here, this miraculous foretold birth. Right. All right. So again, um, they come to have the baby named. The father's been, you know, a mute for nine months. So they ask uh, mom, right? Of course, Zechariah after his father, which um, a bit about names, right? Uh, the old way, particularly for the Jews of old, was to name you within the family line because a large part of their religion is keeping track of the family line. In fact, as I was having a conversation recently with myself about what is a Jew, which I think is an interesting question you have to ask as a Bible-reading Christian, uh, I realized um, uh, that, that most people who will claim to be Jews today do not in any way follow any of the prescriptions of the Old Testament. 
Uh, they, they don't hold to any of that. So the idea of, of defining what a Jew is, it, it's very, very difficult thing to do. But a large part of it is their tribal identity, their history as a people, their bloodline. And I'm not mad about that for them. I would say that anyone who says I'm a Jew and doesn't know what tribe they're from doesn't take it seriously. I'd say that, right? I don't know. But that said, so naming it within the family was part of remembering who you were and who you are, which for them means Abraham promises from God, right? This is important. So why would you let go of that history? Why would you not pass forward your name? Now, as Americans, we don't do this all the time, and maybe we have some good reasons. In my latter years, where it's a little too late for me, I've had to think about it a bit much. I didn't pass forward my name. Why not? Why not? Well, here is because of a prophecy, and that prophecy has its own kind of power and twist to it. But again, first, mom says no. His name will be John. They don't, they don't believe her, though. And this is something about the Old Testament uh, first century world, you know, women are not considered faithful witnesses in, in any culture, any court of law, anywhere. Uh, it is the New Testament that sees women as the first witnesses to the resurrection that changes that for everybody. Uh, and so the reason, women, you're considered reliable as witnesses today is because of Jesus. And even if you don't like Jesus, you should thank Jesus, because that's why. <laughs> there's no way around it historically. So there's that. Nonetheless, they go to dad, right? Dad's got to name the boy. And that's, that's right, actually. Uh, they said to her, there's no one among your relatives. They make signs to the father. I've never understood this verse. I've never seen someone explain to me he's, he's mute, not deaf and blind. I, I don't quite know, but I'm sure Luke who doesn't make mistakes. Luke is a genius when it comes to language. I don't even try with his Greek because it's just, it's professional. It's like reading the British writing Greek. You know, it's, it's really, really up there. So I know he's saying something and it isn't, you know, stupid. So what it is, I'm not sure. But clearly they're like, tell us the real name. And then they do the smart thing. They get the writing tablet, right? And he says his name is John and they all marvel because he confirms the witness of his wife which is something that nobody would ever do. And why would he do this? Nobody knows. He hasn't been able to talk. And when he is able to talk in the next moment, he does say why, but not in a, a short explanation, right? And, and we're going to take apart this Benedictus, this song of Zechariah, um, when we get to it. Um, on the name John, uh, and I'll just be a failure uh, in one sense here for you, I love etymology. I love the meanings of names, and I think they matter a lot, especially in the Bible. I think there are stories in the names, behind the names in the Bible. Um, John, however, is a name which etymology, as I've tried to find now where this word come from, I don't have a memory of a clear answer, which to me says, uh, I don't know what John means. I've heard grace. I've heard dove, love. I don't know. Um, and so where do you go for those resources? Why does God pick this name? I mean, that is an important question. It's one I don't have an answer for today. But he calls this guy something different. Oh, well, maybe that's why. Right? The whole point of this guy is something different. Elijah coming back. Let's just let that be there for now. You can ponder it and share your own speculation with me on it later if you like. Um, but uh, verse 63, excuse me, uh, verse 64 Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, praising God, right? Uh, the Psalter, oh, Jesus Christ, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Uh, we are given breath in order to praise, hallelujah. Uh, 
It's a powerful thing, and we see it here. And in this moment when he is, he is set free, what's set free is his tongue. Right? So on the one hand, Christianity is about discipline in your tongue. It's because it will be set free by the word of God. Uh, and going on, uh, fear came on all who dwelt around them, right? So this is the epic hero story. They're like, what's going on? Is it Odysseus that was born, right? That kind of thing. And all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. Well, it made a stir in the temple, right? The guy who was mute, who then all the, you know, it made a stir. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts. He'll say that about Mary later, you remember? Storing up all this in her heart. Saying, here's their question. What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Again, that language, the hand of the Lord being with him, reminiscent of Samson, uh, reminiscent of Jesus as well. Uh, the hero myth, right? Do you know what I mean if I say that? I'm not claiming that Luke's a myth. I'm saying that most other stories in the world are a hero myth of some kind. And the greatest of hero myths always have a miraculous birth of some kind. They always have some special beginning. I mean, come on, Harry Potter, right? It wasn't a miraculous birth, but he's the boy who lived, right? So like every single story is a hero myth about this kind of one who's better than the rest of us who will save. The thing about Christianity, of course, is that it's not a hero myth at all. All the hero myths are myths. They're lies twisted to deceive you and distract you from the truth of the actual king prophesied to be born to save us who was and did. And it wasn't in England, though they believed it once. They don't anymore, it seems. This king is there in their midst coming. And the story of his coming is so great that the hero story bleeds over into his forerunner. This guy is not even like his second man. Man, he's not. That's Peter, right? This guy is just his herald. This is his Rabshakeh. Yeah. And about this guy, this Rabshakeh of Christ, yeah? Rabshakeh, the guy who, by the way, if I didn't say it in this service, this is the bad guy who speaks for Assyria in the Hezekiah story, right? So John's like the good version of that. Uh, now we get the prophecy that Zechariah said, right, about him. And I want you to take this prophecy that he foreruns with as being about you, too. It's about us. This is the New Testament. This is the good news right here, right? That blessed is the Lord God. God himself is good. God himself is good. He is the God of Israel, right? The God who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why is he good? Do we praise him? Because he has visited and redeemed his people. Visited in the Old Testament means like Mount Sinai, <laughs> like, like uh, crossing the Red Sea, right? Like the angels destroying Assyria. It doesn't mean, I mean, he comes to hang out with Abraham in the tent the one afternoon, right? But that's, that is a time of visitation, but that's not where this word is going now. Except for that, do you remember what happens after that visit of Abraham in the tent? Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so when God comes to visit, he comes to destroy bad stuff. That's what he does. But then redeem, he buys back the good stuff, which is you. You're not good enough. I said that already today. You're a sinner. But now he's declared you good enough, so you don't get to cry about it anymore. Now you got to believe. you got to believe. You're good enough in Jesus. He's redeemed you. All right. Blessed be him for that and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, right? So that the redemption and buying back of humanity is through one house, 
and it's not Windsor, right? And it's not the Pope and his holy orders. Uh, it is the house and lineage of David. And I don't know. I don't know if I go over to some synagogue on the coast of Galilee, if there'll be someone who says, yes, I'm of the house and lineage of David. I don't know. Someone asked me a week or two ago, what are the Jews waiting for? I don't know. But I do know that the house of David was a real house. And I do know that there's a man alive, born of it, who shall never die again. And he sits on his glorious throne and he gives as a free gift to all people, the nations you and I included, life everlasting. That indeed, again, is the horn of our salvation, Jesus, the warrior who fights for us. Horn, why a horn? This is a battle implement. Uh, in the old world, it would have been like a ram's horn or a cow horn, something, you know, an actual horn, not a trumpet. <laughs> and they would blow through it and make one or three noises. And largely, it would be used to maneuver and manipulate troops for battle, like a banner or a flag would be, to call people out from the hills. You know, the bagpipes work this way <laughs> a little bit. Um, but uh, it also becomes very much a mark of an individual warrior or, or the king himself or a general, because when the general is in trouble in the middle of a crowd and he wields his battle horn and blows the battle horn, all his top troops know and they turn and they look and they rally to him and they gather and they fight back and they win the day, right? That's the horn. That's what that means. And he's raised that up for us. It's already here. Jesus did it. Done. It is finished. As he spoke by the mouth of his prophets. Now we're going back in time, right? It is finished, but it's been said to be coming all the way up to the time it happened. These prophets of old who have been since the world began. You know, every prophecy that God sent is not written down. You know that? Right? Everything Noah preached didn't get written down. Huh? What did Enoch say? There is a book with his name on it, and we can debate that one too. It's probably not by him. Uh, but what did Enoch say before the flood? He was a prophet, right? Uh, I've always thought it'd be fun to write a song for all the unsung prophets, and particularly the prophets whose names we don't know. One of my favorites, and I don't mean favorite like I want to be this guy. I mean like this story just confuses me, is the prophet who has no name, who's sent to a king in Israel to tell him to repent. He does. He's offered food. He says, no, God said, if I take food from you, I'll die. So I'm going home like I was told to. And on the way home, another prophet meets him, one from northern Israel, and he's a liar. And he says, God told me to, you to eat with me, told me to tell you to eat with me. God told me to tell you that his former word isn't true anymore. Ah, ah, and then he eats with them and then he gets mauled by a lion and dies. We don't know that guy's name. I think it'd be cool to have a verse about him and a hymn. Ah, the point is, there's been a lot of these guys. And I think we meet that guy in heaven. I don't think his failure to fulfill God's command to obedience meant God withdrew his grace of salvation for him. It only meant that he didn't get to go home that day. Yeah, He was given a prophet's burial, by the way, by the false prophet who in some way repented of the deed. That said, many prophets telling us that there will come salvation from the true God and that ultimately we know he is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Certainly one so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Which was your enemy? Sin, death, the power of the devil, for sure. Who are your enemies? The demons that you don't even realize are around, right? Uh, who are your enemies? The people who let the demons tell them what to do. And we can, again, debate how that happens. Jesus saves you from this. Now, now, um, 
I didn't have this happen to me. I heard the story once though of, of a, a Christian who was at a youth group and, you know, youth group, eh. but uh, there was someone at that youth group who thought of herself as a, a witch or something. And she thought it'd be really funny to put a hex on the youth group leader um, uh, and kind of snuck up behind the youth group leader and started, you know, uh, I don't know what they do to make their hexes. The person was the one telling me this, right? So this isn't my story. This is a secondhand story. Um, but what he, what he shared with me, because I was like, wow, like, that's kind of scary. He was like, what? No, it's not scary. What's she going to do to me? Remember, if you're surrounded, it's Jesus surrounding you. If someone puts a hex on you and it comes true, guess who put the hex on you? Right? It wasn't the witch. <laughs> she thinks it was. It wasn't. It was Jesus. Right? So again, that we be, should be saved from the hand of our enemies. Don't fear the demons. Don't fear the darkness. Let the name of Jesus be upon your lips and believe that he will answer you today with salvation to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Again, the Old Testament promises are yours. And those promises include peace in the soul, love within the family unit, a city that's not falling apart. Those are promises to Christians. Christians have to be in charge for some of those promises to be benefited to everybody else, right? But, but nonetheless, there's no reason just because the city falls apart that your house has to. And to remember his holy covenant, he says, which he defines in the next line, 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. That's the same promises, right? That through Abraham, the world will be blessed. And that added to that were the promises of Mount Zion, that God would be with his people to save them from their enemies, to provide their food every day, all these things, right? All of this is ours now. It's not gone. He's not a watchmaker in the sky who left us alone and can't intercede. He's the true living God. To grant that we, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, right? He does this. He saves us from present time problems so that we can serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Would you believe it? God really wants people just to have decent lives. Like that's why he made it. He was like, you know what? I'm bored. I'll make a place and some people in the place and they can love it. Right? That's his goal in all of this. That's still his goal then in raising up Christ from the dead and calling us out of the darkness of the present, but letting us still live in the midst of it so that we can come to believe he's got the capacity to save us today, tomorrow, the next day, and the next day again until the final great day where all of it is wrapped up. And it's not like salvation is going to stop the day after. We just won't be saved from evil. We'll only be saved until more good. More and more good is who your God is going to be to you because he wants you to serve him without fear. Holiness and righteousness, set apart and good. That's what it means. Set apart and good all your life long, which never ends even though you die. And he turns and says to John the Baptist himself, but again, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist, which I take that to mean the last shall be first, the first shall be last. We're all the same. We're all brothers in Christ. So you can take this as being about you too. You will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, I don't mean you're the actual forerunner, Elijah's second come, right? No one thinks I said that. Uh, what I mean is though, when the word of God is on your lips, you are a prophet of the most high. And you go before Jesus Christ, according to his Holy Spirit, to prepare his way in the hearts of unbelievers by the words that you bring. This doesn't happen when you say what you think. 
This happens when you say what Jesus says. And the more you bring what you think in line with what Jesus says, you'll find it happening to you. Like you'll, you can say it to yourself. To give knowledge of salvation to his people, right? Oh, goodness. I made such a mistake. I won't even tell you. I made such a mistake the other day. I made such a mistake. It didn't hurt anyone but one guy whose car insurance, my car insurance, is taken care of. Anyways, now you know part of the issue. Anyway, such a simple mistake, such an easy mistake. And I thank God the first thing came out of my mouth was hallelujah this time. Oh, my goodness. You know, I've told you before what came out of my mouth other times, right? Hallelujah came out. Hallelujah came out. Knowledge of salvation in the moment of fear is a gift from Jesus. The remission of sins, that's what the real salvation is about, right? That all your past, all your wickednesses, all your fleshly temptations, none of it can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ through the tender mercy of our God. Because that's who God is. He'd rather love than hate. They scream, love is love, but they hate. He'd rather actually love, which is what you do when you let them silently yell at you and you don't respond in kind. Actual love doesn't need to yell like that, right? Uh, indeed, patience is often what it exercises. The tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. The past tense again, Jesus has come, he is incarnate. Day spring, an interesting bit there. You'll get that in, O come, O come, Emmanuel, about day spring from on high. This is one of those things in the Old Testament that kind of overlaps with paganism. You know, chicken and egg. Which came first, right? The pagan mythology that sounds like Christianity or Christianity, right? Uh, the answer is Christianity came first uh, in Old Testament, you know, Noah form. And then all the myths arise as twists and turns that, that kind of ruin that Christianity, okay? But in that, the idea of the day spring out in paganism, the morning star, let's just call it the light within too while we're at it. Yeah, like that is their God. That is the devil, the morning star and the day spring. Except for that it's not, because remember what I said, even the devil's just on a leash. And so the actual power of the devil to be the day spring was just given to him. And so now the real, actual day spring from eternity, light of light begotten, right? He has, he has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness, it says. Let me put that in American terms, to give you Enlightenment. Enlightenment. Christianity is the promise of God's enlightenment. Buddhism is not, and yet Buddhism holds the lock on that word in English, don't they now? If you don't know, they do. If you want enlightenment, you got to go meditate with some Buddhists. Yeah? Maybe you can reach nirvana or something like that. Yeah? No. No, no, no. I'll just read it again. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Enlightenment in the midst of death. Now, someone can probably internet quit me on this one, but I'm pretty sure Buddha's last words were, save yourself. I was told that by a Buddhist. He was thinking about Christianity at the time. He never converted. He liked his religion, he said. I liked him. Save yourself. Hmm. To give enlightenment to darkness by showing you how death has been defeated. How he holds the keys of Hades and hell. And how not only can you not save yourself, foolish Buddhist, uh, but indeed you are saved. He has visited. He has come. And then the result of this to guide our feet into the way of peace. Um, 
Christians are not against violence. That is, we're not pacifists. And it's really easy why. You like to eat, right? So we got to kill stuff. And if you want to get all vegan on it, I'm sorry, you're hacking that flower to death. It's pretty rough if you ask me. Your morality seems weird. You're going to be nice to plants and not animals. Or nice animals, not plants. Peace is not about av avoiding violence in this fallen, broken, dying world. Peace is about pursuing peace. And it's just a fact of this world that sometimes peace only occurs on the other side of violence. When you are attacked as a country and you defend yourself, the reason you do it is for the sake of peace. I don't think anybody defends their homeland because they plan to attack. I mean, it's maybe rarely though, right? So the idea here again is I, I just, I would hate for us at such a time as this, as Christians in America, to become pacifists, because it's not true. Pacifism is cowardice. Pacifism sees a woman being abused by a man and can't stop it. God never says that. He never says, let it be when it's under you and you have the power to save. He merely says, when you have the power, don't assume that violence is the greatest power. And remember that anything you get by violence, you will probably have to keep by violence. And so the reign of the Son of Man in heaven, Jesus Christ, is not by violence. You'll notice his kingdom has not used a sword, really. It's by wisdom instead. It's by plain and simple understanding. And in one sense, that means by grace. Because the understanding one who understands all must speak to we who understand so little. And we're going to say, no, and I don't get it. And why? And he's going to say, I love you. And I'll explain it later. You see how grace then is before even wisdom. Grace gives the place for wisdom to grow. And that song of Zechariah, the Benedictus again, we just finished going through it, the prophecy about who John the Baptist is going to be as the first of us, the first Christian, the first of the millions who will forerun Christ's second return, right? All of that is then for you to believe is a promise for your life today. Just like the Magnificat is, just like Hannah's song is, just like the whole Psalter is. And that's because, again, you are, you're a Christian. You're chosen. In the name of Jesus, amen.